Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris O'Fault, the editor of the Toolkit, and my guest today is Michael Shore, the creator and executive producer of The Good Place on NBC. And this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Sony Pictures Television Series, One Day at a Time, for your Emmy consideration in Outstanding Comedy Series and all other categories. A reimagining of Norman Lear's classic sitcom, One Day at a Time is a hilarious and heartfelt comedy that follows three generations of a Cuban-American family navigating the ups and downs of life. Through a contemporary lens, One Day at a Time offers a glimpse of what life looks like in good times and bad, and how those around you somehow make it all worthwhile. And here is my conversation with Michael Schur. You know, my, my experience with the show is that uh, I, watched the, I watched the pilot, and I was like, oh, that's super, super smart. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, kind of, it's, like, it's, a, it's a cool concept. Sure. You know, and you've seen those shows before, too. It's like, oh, that's really smart. That's a good concept. But it's like, I don't know that I'm going to stick with it. Sure. And, of course, that wasn't the case. I'm still glued <laughs> to it. But I, 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 it brings me to thinking about you pitching the show to NBC. Right. Which I'm sure, you know, there's part of in their mind going, can't we go workplace comedy? Can't we go something like that? Because this is, is one of those things where it's like, the, the concept is so big, where are we going to find an audience to go in on it? Yeah. So a couple things about that. One of them is that uh, the best pilots um, are often the worst shows <laughs> and vice versa, which is to say if you have a pilot that has a big, gigantic concept behind it, a big idea, that often is very grabby and it makes people very excited and mm -hmm. it's very glitzy and kind of like, ooh, I get it, I understand what this is. And then what happens is, well, it's like a movie. You made a movie in 30 minutes instead of a TV show and that concept burns off after six episodes or so, and then you're just left, everyone's left just staring at each other thinking what the hell happens now. So, and then the best, the, the lowest concept pilots, if you think about Cheers or Friends or whatever, The Office, Parks and Rec, those kinds of things, they have, um, those pilots are usually not like beloved pilots because all they're doing is introducing you to a world and a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. And comedy isn't funny until you understand who the people are. And so as a result, the narrative becomes, for a lot of these shows, it started off really slow and then it got good. And it's like, well, that's the, the necessity is to start off slow mm -hmm. because you have to just painstakingly kind of explain who everybody is and what they're doing there in this low stakes environment or low-fi environment. So when I had this idea, that was my biggest fear. My biggest fear was, is this a movie? And am I going to make a kind of grabby pilot that's easily explained to people who haven't seen it mm -hmm. and might make people like excited about tuning in, but that it's going to lead to a kind of bad show? And as a result, before I even committed to writing the pilot, I decided I needed to know the entire first season. If mm -hmm. I felt like it was a legitimate ongoing concern is how I thought of it. Like, is this an ongoing concern? Is this something that has uh, legs? Then I would commit to it. So I sort of thought about the pilot and then I also thought about the series and who the people were. And then I thought like, okay, when, when is Eleanor gonna get caught? I guess the natural thing would be Eleanor gets caught at the end of the first season. And I was like, no, you can't wait that long. People mm -hmm. will get bored. So what if it's halfway through the year? And then I came up with the twist and of like, oh, maybe this isn't uh, what you thought it was. It's something entirely different. And so when I had the whole season laid out, I became, only then did I even commit to writing it or pitching it. And so by the time I pitched it to the network, 
what could have been a stumbling block for them and would have been a very reasonable and rational stumbling block became, it was sort of neutralized because I was able to say, basically, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> like, I know this is like, this is a giant premise that will burn off, but don't worry because here's how it's gonna play out. Mm -hmm. And so when, it, when I was able to do that and say, here's an entire season's worth of ideas, that gave them the same confidence that it gave me, which is to say, this is an ongoing concern. This can actually last for a while. And along those, and I, I assume when you say, uh, when you're, you're breaking the story and figuring out the whole first season, and you're figuring out if it'll write, I assume part of that is, is how much that story is flowing out of you, how much you're... Yes, is it a vein that you've tapped that yeah. leads to a lot of ideas? Um, that is the good thing about a big juicy idea like this, is it does, it tends to do that, at least for a while. Mm. It's a little bit like, it's like there will be blood, like we tapped like a gusher, <laughs> and a lot of stuff came flying out. But again, you, that can be misleading, right? You mm -hmm. could say like, oh my God, I've got eight ideas. And it's like, well, ideally you want 500, <laughs> you know? So, so until you have 500 that come from the same, that come from your original idea, you, mm -hmm. you should be cautious. All those, off those lines, often you, you talk to screenwriters who do, you know, on the, the sci-fi side or the world-building side of things, they often say that they need, it's not that they need to know the arc, but they need to know the rules of this world yeah. ahead of time. Sure. Now, obviously this world keeps evolving, and I'm, you know, you're right, and you're across the street right now, evolving it into season three, and so, you know, and there's there's been layers, but to what degree did you need to figure out not once again, not the characters, not the arc, but like how these, how this world worked, how the, you know, the good place, the bad place. Yeah, the, we've introduced you introduced something towards the end of two. Yeah, that was a huge part of it, um, largely because I had never written in this space before. Like this is not my, my milieu, uh, science fiction. What I have come to think of as just science fiction. Mm -hmm. um, the. I mean, having been an avid consumer of science fiction my whole life, mm. I knew that rules are important, and I knew that the best pieces of science fiction, to my mind, are the ones that where, you, where you feel like you're on solid ground, where the sands are not shifting constantly in terms of what's possible, what isn't possible. You know, can you time travel? Can you, you know, move matter with your mind? Who are the, like, who, who runs the, who did, makes decisions? So obviously I'm dealing in the afterlife and I spent a lot of time thinking like who's in charge, who's not in charge, what's the system, has the system always been this way, all that sort of stuff. A lot of it was created and then buried in the backstory of the pilot and the, and the show and only gets drawn out when there's a question that affects like the world in some way you know, in the writer's room, we'll go back and say, okay, wait, what have we, what do we, how have we been operating, under which beliefs have we been operating in this realm? We've been operating under these beliefs, like this is what can happen, this is what can happen. I remember reading Dune when I was a kid, mm -hmm. and it blowing my mind, and you get to the end of the ver the paperback of Dune that I read, and there were, there's like a 150 page appendix of just like the geological makeup of the planets involved like here are the kinds of rocks and like shale and and you know here are the kinds of plants that grow and it was like say what you want about science fiction say what you want about dune that guy knew everything about his world and so i've that's always stuck with me as being like what you need before you start writing a piece of science fiction you just have it like you might not some of this stuff might never see the light of day 
but I feel like we need to know it all. And that's you the know? thing, you don't, it, it's not something that is like an exposition thing that has to be explained, but there is a sense of when the creator knows how the pieces fit together. Yeah. It really does, I think, show in just the way that things evolve. Right, and, in, and, that, and they evolve more effortlessly, I th would say, right? Like the, my biggest fear has been to do something clumsy, like where suddenly out of nowhere, the whole thing shifts in a way that, you know, for shock value or for the sake of just trying to like be surprising, but that there doesn't seem to be an internal consistency in terms of why it happened. So the season one ending twist, I knew I had that one. That one was organic. That one was planned from the beginning. I, we quadruple, quintuple checked every single move we made the whole year to make sure that as we put it, we put it on an index card uh, on our wall, we wrote, um, is it consistent with the long game? That's how it was phrased. Meaning, is there anything, any shot, any scene, any moment that when you get to the end of the season, you could look back and say, wait a second, that wasn't possible, or why did this happen? So we knew we had that big, gigantic, organic twist at the end of the first season, but then everything after that has been a daily check-in of like, are we still okay here? Are we doing something that contradicts what we believe to be true about this world? And you just have, it's like, it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. But you just, I feel, my t I'm sort of like kept afloat by my anxiety about blowing it. <laughs> that's like, that's what, that's what drives me forward at this point. In this day and age, you'll get called out on it too. You oh, know? I mean, forget it. Of course you will. And by the way, you should. Like, I think that, you know, people, including me, occasionally complain about the amount of scrutiny that, that your writing is under, that the production is under, but I feel like it's, isn't it better that people are held to high standards? Like, you always want to be held to high standards, and I feel like, you know, it's like the, the stuff that was made fun of in Galaxy Quest, of like, you know, the kinds of questions of like, in this episode you said this, but, you know, in episode three, two, four, this thing happened, how do you, what, like, that's people of the consumers of the of the work have always cared. It's just that the people behind the scenes who are making it didn't as much. And so I think it's good. It's like now we're at a at a in an era where you have to care. It's because it because people can see everything and and everything's available. And you ignore sort of internal consistency at your own peril, I think. You know, the you, you referenced the season one. Uh, twist at the end, yeah. which worked beautifully. Thank you. We didn't see it coming. Um, it kind of reset the deck in a really interesting way, uh, totally organic to the story. But I have to assume that because it was so successful and was such a big deal, that there, there's a few things. One, it kind of overshadows to be it's something you have to kind of deal with. Mm -hmm. in the, and you were talking about you know knowing the rules of the world and not kind of wanting to jump into story instead of exposition. But you do kind of have to like pick up pieces. Yeah in those first four episodes for season four, too. But also, you continue to write towards twists um, in, in season two. And I, I wonder how much of that is something um, you, in terms of an audience. You know, it's like they're kind of expecting a, a twist now, right. you know, which is not something that we're used to in, in a 30-minute network comedy. Right. Um, so... I, to me, the cautionary tale here is M. Night Shyamalan because The Sixth Sense came out and people rightly and justly said this is an incredibly potent new voice in the cinema. 
and then Unbreakable came out, and people were like, okay, not not as like mind blowing, but still very well done. And then like at at Signs, it was like you heard a lot of people say like, pretty good. I kind of guessed. I kind of was was guess what was what was happening. And then every movie since then, it's been a game that we play in this country, which is watch the trailer and see if you can guess the twist. And I remember watching the trailer for The Village. I think I was at the office at the time, and we just all wrote down what we thought the twist was based on the two minute trailer. And someone I can't remember who got it like seventy percent right. It was like, it was like. Um, I think this is like a Sturbridge village where I grew up in the Northeast and there's like Sturbridge village is like one of those, you know, living. I grew up in New England. So oh, there you go. I am familiar. So it's like one of those living 18th century villages or whatever. It was like, I bet this is like a Sturbridge village situation where it's, they're actually like actors or something, mm-hmm. which is pretty close, spoiler <laughs> alert, to the truth behind the village. So to me, that's the cautionary tale is because you, I think that the reason that twist worked at the end of season one is because no one was looking for a twist. Right. In a half hour network sitcom. No one was looking for it. And so we just, it crept right up. I mean, I remember I was checking Twitter all day the day that it aired. And I was like, no, I don't see anybody. I don't see anybody guessing what's happening. And so what I said to the writers and what we talked about a lot in season two was like, the, the goal here is not to beat it, mm. right? The goal is not to like do something that's more mind-blowing than that. We are not going to get to the end of season two and say, no, wait, actually, it is the good place and Michael's the one who's blah, blah, blah. Like, that. if you just keep doing that, first of all, people start to guess. And second of all, you the audience starts to get annoyed at you because you are just, they can't trust anything that they're watching. Like, if nothing is real, if everything could be, every moment could be a rug pulled out from underneath you, you start to lose any kind of interest in the reality of what you're watching. And then all of the sort of meaty stories that you're trying to tell are just people just going like, is this real? Is that fake? Is that real? So so we just said, like I said at the beginning of season two, like let's just, let's break good stories and follow through on what we did. And by the way, like you said, the pieces that needed to be cleaned up, like in the, in the, you know, as, as befit the show, we were like, we're going to clean up those pieces really fast. We're not going to spend eight episodes of them trying to like slowly maneuver their way until they get to the point where they guess it again. We're going to have them guess it right like in the premiere, like in the season premiere, Eleanor is going to figure it out again because we want to move forward. We don't want this whole thing to be a gimmicky, gamey thing. So that's our operating principle. You know, it's part of the DNA of the show that has twists and turns and it has unexpected surprises, but the goal is not ever going to be to like be bigger and crazier than we were before because I just don't think that leads to good storytelling. So what is step one? I mean, you're, you're going through this right now with season three, but we'll, we'll talk in terms of season two, unless you want to tell us about season three. <laughs> um, but um, what is that step one when you walk into that writer's room. I mean, obviously, you're, you're someone that believes in structure and has, it, it is, is wants to break the whole season. Yeah. Um, but in that sense of, and obviously, you have strong characters and you're thinking about their story and their relationships. In season two, their relationships really really blossom and, and, and really kind of become the meat of that. Well, not that they weren't the meat in the first season. But, but what is that, when you're breaking that season, you're obviously not writing towards twists. What are you know, kind of like, what is step the, one? The tent poles, kind yeah. of? Um, 
step one has been, I mean, it's step one only really applies to seasons two and three, right? There wasn't a really a step one in the first season because by the time you had it, yeah, we had the whole thing. Yeah. We had steps one through twenty, or whatever, one through thirteen. You had it and you gave it to him. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so step one in season two was to re and season three, I would say. It was just to sort of take stock, right? It was mm. like, okay, here's what we've learned. Here's where we are. Here's where all the characters are. Here's where they ended up. And, I, and by the way, in when I'm saying this, I'm realizing is this is not that different from any other show any I've ever worked on or other people have worked on. Um, it maybe is a little more so this way because this show is very serialized. Um, but it's really just, okay, where do we leave off? Where is everybody? What are they doing? What do they want? What are their goals? What do they think is true about the universe they live in? At the beginning of season three, they've all been returned to Earth, and they never died. They're in like a different timeline where they never died. So we had to go all the way back to some of the flashbacks that we saw in season one to remember, like, what was Cheaty like the day he died? Oh, that's right. He was panicking because his best his his friend had asked me best man at his wedding and he had totally fallen to pieces and what was Tahani like well she was miserable and she was at the rock, at a rock and roll hall of fame induction ceremony in Cleveland dressed as a waitress to infiltrate her own sister's induction ceremony because she was so furious that of all the attention she was getting like we had to go all the way back to those moments and say like all right well now these people aren't dying so what happens to you when you are in this particular state of mind and don't die, what's the aftermath, right? So that was step one. And and step two and three and four are a little different, I would say. Those steps are, okay, given that this is where the characters are emotionally, mentally, and physically, and given like the, the big picture story we're trying to tell here, which is now, in season three, the story of a demon and an all-knowing not robot who are who have made a big bet made a big wager on the idea that human beings are better inherently than the sort of mathematical system of judgment says they are how does that play out how do they monitor them how do they how are they tested how are like what's the what are the just plot mechanisms that get us to you know reveal the truth or the falsity of that belief so it's not like a, there's no like revolutionary thing going on. It's like taking stock of where the characters were. The the thing that's different is to me, at least in my world, because I came from, I spent eleven straight years writing some version of a bunch of goofballs in an office, and we never had to do this stuff. Like this is all new for me. It's fun, and scary, <laughs> but it's it's the sort of like we need big cliffhangers and big kind of gigantic signposts that we're aiming at and, and we sort of broke the the season down into three parts like the first like four or so episodes the middle five and then the last four and we try to come up with big giant like flashing lights that can guide us um, through the murky waters and that's to me that's the most important step in the early going is trying to just break down this season into chunks and to say like where what are the what are the big events that we're really aiming at you know in season two it would have been you know well in season one it would have been things like Eleanor confessing and then the bad place showing up and then you know the the getting to Mindy St. Clair's house and stuff like when you develop big when you develop a kind of big moves like that 
going to the bad place in season two, then you then the season starts to take some shape, mm-hmm. and then at that point, you uh, you can start writing. I imagine, and once again, I obviously don't know where you're going with season three, but just seeing from one to two, um, there's also an element of that which are you're opening doors that you're going to have to deal like you're you're making certain decisions that you're yeah. going to have to deal with in three, right? I mean, yeah. that's not all the time, but I mean, in some cases, you're already kind of pre-writing a little bit or, or pre-breaking a little bit of the yeah. previous season, right? That's true. Um, yes, absolutely. There, uh, That's got to be stressful. Too. It is stressful. Well, I'll tell you what's what's interesting about it is I was... Uh, so on The Office, um, Greg Daniels, who was basically taught me how to write television, mm-hmm. um, he used to say he used to say a lot of things that were very smart. And one of them is that the he thought that the difference between sort of good long-term storytelling on TV and bad long-term storytelling on TV is is that is uh, uh, come boils down to sort of what he called institutional memory, and what that meant to him was it really annoyed him when characters seemingly didn't learn anything that stayed with them. That they would do something and act in a certain way, and then eight episodes later there would be a different story, and they would sort of like act in the same way that they did the first time, as if to say their memories were erased and they didn't learn anything. They hadn't grown. They weren't real people who had lives in the, in the same way that like the, the reductive version of it would be when you're a kid and you like touch a hot pan and you recoil in fear the truth is that the kid then learns not to do that anymore it's part of evolution and it used to drive Greg crazy when character when people would pitch stories wherein characters appear to have not learned from the last time they were in a similar situation whether that's romantic emotional professional whatever he felt like people should memory should be institutional for each character and it should be additive. And you, sh- you better have a really good reason for making a character forget a lesson that he or she learned. And in The Good Place, that idea is taken to an, a sort of an extreme. Because not only are the characters emotionally trying to learn things and we want them to like progress as people. In fact, the whole point of the show is how people grow and change, right? But then also there's a weird there's a weird variable here, which is their memories are constantly being erased, so that's interesting. And then on top of that, there's the sort of science fiction or genre space that we're working in, which involves like um, rules be needing to be consistent and the world needing to be consistent. So you literally can't change certain things. If you say that Janet does or does not have a certain ability in such and such a situation, that's just the situation. Now you can't then five episodes later suddenly have her out of nowhere travel through time because you've already, because if you did that, then the audience goes back five episodes in their collective memory and says, well, wait a second, if she can travel through time, why didn't she travel through time five episodes ago when they really needed her to travel through time, right? So that is like, it's, an, it's sort of like an extreme sports version of this lesson I learned writing for Greg, which is, the rules, not only do the rules need to stay the same, but everyone's memory needs to be additive as you go along. And the, and the memory of like the world and the universe that you're in needs to be additive. And everything needs to stay consistent and progress in one direction. And if you don't do that, you're going to get, you're going to write a bad show. <laughs> the device that you're kind of off that, the device that you're left with in particular for the first half of season two, but I guess maybe kind of going in through the whole season is that element of their memories being erased, but 
it's not Groundhog Day because it's kind of the inverse of a Groundhog Day because he they don't remember it. anything. Yeah, yeah, because he remembers everything and the people don't. So right. It's, but but I guess the, the that idea of the audience having a sense of repetition and being kind of like in the flow of information ahead of 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 the characters. Yeah. Um, and then there is that repetitive element. Was that something um, in terms of conceiving? And in writing, did that become something that was liberating or confining? In, in, it, it can be both, right? I think it was almost more confining because that fear that you just named was our number one fear. Our number one fear was the audience is, a, the audience is waiting for the characters to catch up to where they, the audience, are. That's a bad place to be. You do not want to be in that place for very long. It's Dramatic irony does not work in comedy. Uh, so... We, when we had the idea for the, we had the idea for the Groundhog Day episode at the, towards the end of season one, we, so we were sort of talking about what could happen in season two, and that was an obvious idea, right? Is like that, my, that the reboot fails, and then you do an episode where it's just over and over again, right? And, and it was like, okay, that's fun, and I can imagine exactly how that will be fun, especially when put into the hands of Megan Amram, who wrote the episode, who is obsessed with like wordplay and puns and kind of things like that. So you have just shot after shot of like all the different pun names for the restaurants and whatever. That's an obvious engine for goofiness and good times. But it was like, you can't, Groundhog Day could sustain that idea in part because it was a close-ended movie and in part because like you said, it's the inverse where Bill Murray remembers everything and none of the people do. That's a big difference, right? Um, so I said, okay, we're going to do this, but we're going to, the ground, the entire Groundhog Day part is going to be one act, basically. It's going to be eight minutes and we're going to have as much fun as we can in about eight minutes and then we got to move on and this episode has to be about something else. And I think the actual kind of best thing about that episode, which I think maybe is the, my favorite one we did last year, is that after eight minutes of goofiness and craziness and fun, we throw that premise in the garbage and they, they realize they're in the bad place and they go on the run and they go to Mindy's house and they meet Mindy and she's so annoyed because they've been there 15 times already. And then she sees the video of her and Chidi, Eleanor does, lying in bed saying, I love you, which is a whole other can of worms. And there's this whole other thing that happens. Like there's a whole massive chunk of emotional stuff that comes out of that. And I feel like that was the best decision we made as a team was to say, we're not going to indulge too long in the fun Groundhog Day silliness. We got it. We're gonna do it, mm -hmm. and then we're gonna, in classic like 1930s showbiz fashion, we're gonna leave them wanting more, <laughs> and we're gonna get out and we're gonna go do something else. There is one thing though that you do kind of throughout the season that I, I, is that in that sense of um, it allows you omission. It allows you to skip things, and the audience knows where it is, which allows you to kind of get to something quicker. It allows you to get this motion quicker or get to a story in, rather than having to do the setup. We kind of get, you know. We train the audience a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, are you talking about specifically in that episode or in the, the season? Whole, the whole yeah. season. Yeah, I think that, well, that's what happens with any show, I think, is like the shows have their own rhythms and they have their own sort of storytelling devices. Mm -hmm. and, um, and in this case, like, you know, the audience learns the visual language of the show pretty quickly and it learns the sort of like the rhythms of the show pretty quickly and in our show now you're right we have the ability to kind of jump through time to skip to the meat of things in a way that is both a sort of like stylistically and also sort of I don't know what you would call it like humor wise appropriate for the show 
Um, and we can do that either by having some magical being snap his or her fingers mm -hmm. and then just cut right to what we want to cut to, or we can just kind of do it editorially and people are used to the to that style and they kind of get what we're going for. It is a it's a good weapon. It does eliminate a lot of like people walking along and slowly filling each other in on various setup-y things that we need to fill them in on. We have an article up on the site um, about um, your work with consultants. Uh, oh. Much, much to my surprise, um, you weren't a philosophy major. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, uh, but that sense, which, which is to the show's credit, that this this isn't. I think it's to our consultants' credit. Well, frankly. but 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 the idea, well, you know, you can get consultants, but that idea that it's one feels like uh, these things aren't just dialogue or throwing. Uh, right. There's some kind of playing upon it. Um, that element of it is that something where um, because you know the human condition and what the hell we're all doing here is just an endless question that a lot of people have <laughs> tackled from a lot of different angles. Is that something where um, not only is that right for, for, for the show, but it's also something where uh, working with uh, consultants and learning about different, different philosophers and so is that open doors? Does that open possibilities? Or are you more just trying to make sure you're representing? No, it's the former. Mm -hmm. um, it, like the show was pitched as a show about what it means to be a good person. And my initial thought, because it was set in the afterlife, was that I needed to read a lot about world religion, which I knew very little about. So I did that. I learned a lot of um, stuff about various religions, conceptions of the afterlife, and it was all very interesting. And then after, when I was reading about like Zoroastrianism or something, I suddenly, like in a panic, was like, oh, this is completely wrong. I have completely done the wrong thing here because the point of the show, I didn't pitch this as a show, is what it means to be a good a good religious soul or a good like member of a specific church. I pitched it as what it means to be a good person and a good person should be absent any kind of ideology in theory. It's like an abstract concept of just good and bad, right? So I was like, oh, I don't need to read about religion. I need to read about philosophy. Another subject I knew very little about, so I started over. This whole thing seems like an excuse. Like to, to, I have all those courses that I didn't take when I was twenty. Oh and, yeah, and that's like, but I wish I did. I wish I had time to go back to do I'm philosophy you, and world man, religion. I, I feel like this, this is <laughs> my this. What this show has made me feel more than anything is that I should quit my job and go back to college. Like uh, it's the it's when it's our when our on, consultants it's on are nineteen and twenty year olds. <laughs> it totally really is. is when our consultants are giving us uh, information in in our writers room or via Skype. I'm like, this is all I want. I just want, I just want to Skype with these people and have them come in and have them tell me what about the great thinkers. Do you just? I, I, we get, I apologize for interrupting your train of thought, but is, is that is that element? Um, is it is it is it a weekly like? Okay, here's my list of questions for. I don't know what your consultants' names are. And no. Hop on this, or are they like? On it's very irregular. It's basically. I mean, I literally. So one of them uh, is named Pamela Hieronymi. She's a professor at UCLA, and literally yesterday we were talking about free will and determinism. And we did our own research online and realized very quickly that we had no idea what we were talking about. And so I just literally fired off an email to her and said, like, do you have like half an hour in the next week to just like get on the phone with us and explain this to us? So it, it ha that's the way it happens. The other consultant is named Todd May. He teaches at Clemson. And he, we found him because he wrote a book called Death, which is a wonderful title. I think he put that in the show, Yes, right? it's in the show. Yeah. And um, 
And that book was perfect for us because we were trying to figure out um, what would happen to an immortal being, how an immortal being like Michael could ever care about anything. And his book is literally about the sort of like, it's amusing about death and why death gives meaning to our lives and shape to our lives. And so we just, I wrote him an email, I was like, hey, can you, do you want to talk to a bunch of weirdos about your book? And he did, and it was wonderful. And so now we've, we've talked to him a few times. Um, Professor Hieronymi came in and taught us the trolley. She teaches an intro class at UCLA, and she taught us her like philosophy 101 like first day class, which was about the trolley problem. She just walked us through it from beginning to end, and then that became the trolley problem episode. Um, so it's it sort of, it's catch as catch can. It's like when we have questions, we reach out. Todd was in LA recently visiting some friends and came in and gave us like a long lecture, which was wonderful. Uh, they're both really, as you would imagine, very smart people, that goes without saying, but they're also just wonderfully, and this is completely by accident, they're just wonderfully sort of like tempered for what, for, for, t for talking to a bunch of weirdo comedy writers about, about philosophy. <laughs> um, well, it's, it's yeah. hard, it, having come, done some work in academia, it's, it's, everybody knows what they're talking about, but the ones that are genuinely excited about the world rather yeah. than having the conversation with the same eight people. Right. Is, is, it's special. Yeah. yeah, and we just got really lucky, I think. Yeah. They're both really wonderful. Um, so, so, and maybe this even goes back to the pilot, but I mean, the, the world has evolved. Um, it, that idea of... I imagine another challenge of this is what's this going to look like? This is an NBC half an hour comedy. Right. You know, we're on the Universal backlot right now. You're going to be, you know, um, what was that sense of how you were going to make this look and how, how, you know, initially what the good place is going to look like? So there was, there's a couple of very fun things about this. The first one was any visual conception of, what you would call heaven is going to fall flat, right? If there is a heaven of any kind with any religious denominations de definition thereof, it's probably not gonna look like it looks on earth at all, right? So the fun of it was to me, we don't have to represent heaven, we have to represent what a demon is going to build to make a bunch of stupid humans think heaven is. So Dan Bishop, who was the production designer in the first season, we met with him and we were basically like, let's build Disneyland slash The Grove. That, <laughs> the Grove is a outdoor I know, shopping yeah, center yeah. here in LA if you haven't seen it. And, and we did a lot of research about The Grove and about Disneyland. And some of it is basic stuff that you would guess, right? It's incredibly well manicured. There's a lot of flowers. It's very colorful. It's very bright. Everything is very clean. If someone at if you're at Disneyland and you drop a piece of garbage on the ground, a like Disneyland employee shows up out of the shadows and removes it from the ground and throws it away in like 13 seconds max. Mm. So some of it was just that it was about cleanliness and perfection and sort of charm. And we have there's a spot on this in this little village in the back lot of Universal where there's cobblestone streets and that's nice and it sort of has a European village feeling. Um, but then we also learned things about the Grove and about Disneyland. Like they use a lot of pink lights, very subtly pink um, light bulbs, because they find that somehow in their in their like psychological research that pink light 
is makes people feel the happiest or the cheeriest or whatever. So it wasn't, we didn't have to make it heaven. We had to make it a, a, uh, a sort of basic human's conception of what heaven would look like, which is why it was so fun. And then after that, you know, all of this, all of the stuff, it, all the interiors were really specific, right? We had, and we, and by the way, we shot a lot of those exteriors at the Huntington Gardens in Pasadena, which is this incredibly beautiful public, or it's private, but it's uh, open to the public. Um, this just beautiful garden. There's a Japanese garden, and there's a, there's just well manicured lawns and beautiful trees and flowers and stuff. So we found places that just looked tranquil. Then the interiors were very specific. It was like, well, okay, Eleanor's house is going to be the perfect house for someone in the universe named Eleanor Shellstrop who is not this Eleanor Shellstrop. And the goal should be to have it really irritate our Eleanor Shellstrop because that's funny. So we. Characters you know, dictating the production. Exactly. Design of the like interior. a lot of it just, and now like Tahani's mansion, it was like, well, this is what Tahani. There's two people who think they belong there, Tahani and Chidi, and two people who know they don't, Eleanor and Jason. So for Tahani and Chidi, it was as simple as what are those people, what would those people expect to find? And for Eleanor and Jason, it was what are those people, what would make those people the least happy, the most miserable, right? So a lot of it just came naturally out of those, out of like analyzing those characters and then figuring out what they would hate. You have a wonderful cast. Um, in particular, the uh, the four main leads, but then also uh, Ted Danson, you know. So the, <laughs> I mean, in the sense that, but I mean the four, the four the, humans, the four humans, right. and then you know, um, so they're all great. But I, I have to assume, and this is something I don't really know. I mean, know that much about, but I have to imagine there's an element here, especially in a half an hour comedy world, where you have to cast those people as a unit because of this sense of the cadence, the rhythm, the way they're playing off each other. Um, it, it just it, the different tones and different notes or something like that. Is that, is that an element of, of you have to do the unit? Is that something your background and doing the office is? Yeah, although I think of it less as holistic unit and more of, because at some level that you hope is done at the writing stage, right? You mm. hope that you've designed the characters on paper to be that unit and then when you get to the casting it's just about finding the right person to play the role now the way i prefer to do things and the way that i think has been proven to be very effective is you don't say this person is exactly 35 and is exactly this tall and is exactly from this country and is exactly this exact look of person and has this many freckles on her face what you what what I've said like when we designed so we I designed the character of Tahani to be Eleanor's nemesis right and so I knew Eleanor was Kristen and so Kristen is like five one or two or something and has blonde hair and in the world of the show is from Arizona and she had a complex a very specific complex which is boils down to you think you're better than me which is to say she's extremely riled up by people who are haughty or superior or anything like that. She has a she she gets her back up when she feels like she's been condescended to. So who's her nemesis? Well, her nemesis, as we designed it, was a six foot tall South Asian uh, woman who had the demeanor and bearing of like Grace Kelly and an Oxford British accent. Because if you are a person who is feels like you're being condescended to all the time, then your nemesis is definitely going to have an Oxford <laughs> British accent. 
and um, is beautiful and regal and elegant and wealthy and has a gigantic house when you have a tiny one, mm -hmm. right? So that was the design of the character. And Allison Jones and, and Ben Harris, her, um, her number two in charge of that company, um, who are the best at what they do of anyone, is, is wonderful, is, is yes. Wonderful. So what I said to her was, look, this is the design of Tahani. The design of Tahani is Indian or Pakistani by birth, educated and raised in, in England, effortlessly graceful and elegant, Grace Kelly, perfect accent, um, beautiful and regal, and has a, uh, is well-bred and, you know, went to the, all the best schools and has a, like parents who were sophisticated art dealers or something. Um, now, does this person exist on earth? This, and does a person who's like 28 and fits that description or 30 and fits that description exist? I don't know. So what I said to her was, if you find this person and this person is from South Korea, or is from you know Tanzania, or is from Copenhagen, or something. That's fine. I don't particularly care. What what matters more is her physical appearance and her demeanor and her ability to be funny. And I don't particularly care what ethnicity she is. Now, amazingly, because Allison and Ben are the best at what they do, they went and found Jamila <laughs> Jamil who know what who had never acted before but was magically perfect for the role but i think having that flexibility for manny jacinto it was a similar situation it was this guy is going to appear to be a monk who doesn't talk and is going to be revealed to be a dirtbag from jacksonville florida so what mattered to me was that he appears to be a monk frankly and that he is really funny being a dirtbag so that could mean east asian that could mean south asian that could mean Latino, that could mean pretty much anything as long as he, as long as you buy him as a monk and he's funny when he's a dirtbag. And so having a little, building in a little bit of flexibility in terms of who you're looking for instead of magically trying to find exactly the person who fits exactly the description helps. And then you hire people like Allison and Ben and they magically find you the right people anyway. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's my recipe for success. Um. Congratulations. I, season two was wonderful. Thank you. Um, you're on season three now, I assume, back in the fall? Back in the fall. We don't know exactly when, but yes, back in the fall. All right. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you.